this passage is from the Putney Debates in October 1647. Uh, it includes a very famous line people have probably heard before. Um, the speech was delivered by uh, Thomas Rainsborough. He was a commander in the New Model Army and a contemporary of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, here he's commenting on a proposal made by the Levelers, uh, one of the many dissenting factions at the time. Uh, Rainsborough said, I desire that those that had engaged in it should speak, for really I think that the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he. And therefore, truly, sir, I think it's clear that every man that is to live under a government ought first, by his own consent, to be put himself under that government. And I do think that the poorest man in England is not at all bound in a strict sense to that government that he hath not had a voice to put himself under. And I am confident that when I have heard the reasons against it, something will be said to answer those reasons, insomuch that I should doubt whether he was an Englishman or no, that should doubt of these things. Uh, from the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, uh, friends and comrades, your Highlands Bunker podcast. Um, thank you for uh, downloading and uh, putting it into your ears. Um, today, uh, we have a, a virtual uh, sort of ideological session. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, researcher and author Steve Paxton. Uh, he is back on the show to discuss his newest book, How Capitalism Ends, History, Ideology, and Progress. Um, I'm also hoping he gives us an update on the recent form of his 50-over Sunday League football side. Uh, I am pleased to welcome back Steve Paxton. Uh, Steve, how you doing? Hi, Rob. Good. Yes, thanks. Good to be back again. Uh, it's, it's it's good to uh, it's good to hear from you uh, again, and it was great to read to read your book. Um, before we get to the book, though, I do need to get your comments. Um, here in the U.S., we've got a uh, an absurd sort of reactionary cheer. Build the wall. You know, it's quick, really punchy. Um, not to be outdone, uh, I just saw the Tory government has rolled out a new slogan, Stop the Boats. So we have Stop the Boats, Build the Wall. What the hell is going on over there, Steve? Well, very much the same as is going on over over there. It's um, basically, you know, there is absolute chaos as the cost of living crisis, various constitutional crises. The Tory government is trailing massively in the polls. Brexit is... To no one, really, to no one's surprise, is turning out to be a massive disaster. Um, and the government are off the rails, and so they're trying to distract everyone by pointing their finger at, at kind of vulnerable people trying to escape war and and other kind of terrible things by getting to Britain. And the the, the last stage of that process, progress to Britain is is to cross the English Channel from France. And so there's a kind of a trade in. Um, getting people into small boats and trying to cross the English Channel. It's about 20 miles at its narrowest point um, and land in the UK and claim asylum. Yeah, it's always um, it's always weird to me. I mean, it's as you said, it's a it's a it's a reactionary tactic. So it's not the first time we've seen sort of scapegoating of this sort, um, especially when uh, material conditions deteriorate. Um, but it is always very uh very sickening to me when we do it to people like literally running for their lives. Um, and it's very similar to here, you know, here, obviously we have a land border. So, um, you know, it's more sort of sneaking across the desert, 
um, trying to get out of bad situations in Central America mostly. Um, but yeah, when you see people running for your lives and then see them sort of scapegoated, uh, it's it's a yeah, it's a real fun time. Yeah, it, it's shocking, and lots of the you know there have been lots of comparisons to 1930s Germany. Um, I guess I mean you you're probably familiar with Gary Lineker. I don't know how many of your listeners are. Uh, he's a he's a former footballer, very very big footballer, England captain, top goal scorer in, in the '86 World Cup, I think. Uh, now he's a presenter of, a, of of Match of the Day, the, the biggest football program in the country. And but he's also a person that can see what's happening and has just said, look, this is this is the the wrong response to um, some migrants turning up. Is that we start using kind of 1930s Germany type rhetoric and. All of the people, all of the people that two weeks ago were demanding that that TV presenters should be allowed to have their opinions when Jeremy Clarkson came out with some outrageous right wing stuff, now they're saying he shouldn't be allowed to have a voice and he's got to be quiet. And obviously, you know the the, the standard free speech warriors um, who are over here. It's kind of a different issue, free speech over here to over there, or it plays out differently. Obviously, the you know the philosophical questions are the same but it plays out differently over here pretty much everybody who regularly shouts about free speech is a kind of right-wing nut job and uh um they're all they've all gone very quiet obviously when everyone's calling for someone sympathetic to migrants to be sacked from their job for, for being literally for being sympathetic to migrants yeah um just a quick word uh for longtime fans of the show people will remember that i am a tottenham fan um, you know, unfortunately, uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, uh, Lineker won the Golden Boot in 86 in Mexico, and he had just completed a transfer from Tottenham Hotspur to Barcelona, I think. And I thought, Tottenham Hotspur, that's a cool name. And so I was 11 years old, and I've been stuck, I've been stuck with this miserable team ever since. Um, but yeah, um, Lineker is uh, sort of one of my, one of my early uh, footballing heroes anyway, and I'm very glad that unlike a lot of um, sort of heroes of your youth, especially in sport, um, turn out to be f- pretty bad. Um, he, he, he turned out to be pretty good. So um, let's, so let's get to the book. Um, <clears throat> I want to s- sort of start at the first section and sort of uh, p- lay the groundwork and talk about the emergence of capitalism. Um, I'm particularly interested in this because we're all working on a history project right now that um, we're just, we're researching the history of the state of Delaware, this little strip of land along the Delaware River. And uh, for a, after a brief foray by the Swedes, the, the, the Dutch started to settle here um, and made sort of successful colonies here. The two big ones uh, were one was owned by the city of Amsterdam municipally and one was owned by the Dutch West India Company. And these are two very nascent sort of capitalistic moves too. Um, you don't you don't talk about um, those in your in your book, but you talk about ones that are contemporary of those in England and in France. Um, I, I just, I guess I would like to set the groundwork for that process of the transition from feudalism to capitalism, um, but, but really explain what we mean when we say that the material conditions required a new set of relationships and institutions that feudalism didn't provide, and that how importantly those institutions and economic relationships were unheard of. Uh, and then sort of created in an evolution that wasn't natural. It was created, but it took, you know, a few hundred years to do. Um, so I, I, I know you have a good sort of overview of this, and I think it's important. Sure. So I, I think, I guess, that, you know, you need to, partly we need to kind of understand um, 
the position in somewhere like England around 1500. Um, so at that time, uh, about 75% of people worked on the land, which means that each person is producing a, about enough food for themselves and a third of another person. So this doesn't obviously allow for very much of a, a you can't have very much urbanization and industrialization because you just don't have an, enough people that aren't engaged in working on the land. So you need some kind of increase before you can have any of that. You need one of the material conditions you need is an increase in labor productivity, um, agricultural output per, per person so that a, a smaller agricultural population can support an increasing urban population and uh, an increasing in, increasing industrial population so that there is there is you know the, the stuff moved quite slowly in 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 those days change was was very slow and or, but it but it did happen and as as technology started to change and started to allow greater agricultural production various things like the if, if the um four field farming system for, which was an advance on crop rotation um, which allowed for greater productivity, sheep folding, that kind of thing. This all this all allowed much more productivity, which kind of meant that there was this 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 extra. There was a, there was a bit of a, an agricultural surplus, which could then enable um, an urban population. At the same time, the wool trade was taking off, and sheep became quite a you know quite a profitable thing, and, and that meant that land became quite a profitable thing. So. Before before this kind of point, up to about 1500, the, the picture in England really was that land ownership was really, it was not an investment, it was a status symbol. The people who owned the land, the lords of the manor and, and, and the smaller far, uh, farmers, they they really got their status from how many people, how much land they owned, how, how many people they had under them, how close they were to the monarchy and the kind of feudal hierarchy. But but it wasn't really that it wasn't really a kind of a money machine that we see land ownership and capitalism turn into, um, and this was quite a slow process as this agricultural output as it, as new techniques became available and agricultural output increased, and towns began to grow and trade began to grow. People felt that the the system that the, the existing system was kind of holding back their kind of new ambitions, these new kind of breed of farmers who and, and, and landowners who suddenly saw these opportunities but couldn't take advantage of them. And partly they couldn't take advantage of them because on the one hand, there was no kind of free labour force. The market in labour wasn't free. People were kind of tied to the land, tied to their manor. If they wanted to work outside the manor, they would always have to get permission and that wasn't necessarily going to be forthcoming often even traveling outside certainly marrying outside would need permission sometimes you'd have to pay a fee as well and also people it it wasn't so easy for people to move because they were kind of tied to the land because their subsistence depended on on their access to some of the to some of the resources some of the means of production that were owned or that or that came under the ownership banner of the kind of the, the lord of the manor Ownership then was a different thing. You didn't have, I mean, now we're very used to you either own something or you don't, or you might have a mortgage on something, which means you kind of, you own it under certain circumstances. But but in those days, in, in kind of pre-capitalist situation, ownership meant something different. People would have um, customary rights. So their family had occupied a, a piece of land for, 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 for generations. They had a customary right for that occupation to be renewed. Or they, or they felt that they did at least, and, and and that is usually what happened. They couldn't, they didn't own the land, they couldn't sell it, they couldn't bequeath it to somebody, but they, they, their ownership might carry on through generations. 
Um, so this kind of, the, the, the land was bound up with the people on it. The people were bound to the land. Um, and also even markets and commodities weren't free. They were generally, um, the, the borough would decide how much, uh, what price you could sell commodities for, how much you could sell. The first, the first call always went to local people to buy stuff that they needed for subsistence. Then any surplus that was left after that could be bought by kind of local tradesmen, brewers, bakers, whatever, to buy the things that they needed for their trade. And only if there was anything left could then any money be sold to merchants to take away from the local community to try and make some money off it, kind of further afield. So what this means is you you have the emergence of capitalism is really stymied by by these rules. And, you know, Marx has the phrase, the, the, these, these um, fetters must be burst asunder. And they were burst asunder. There, there were, there was no kind of great big kind of um, flashpoint where that happened. There was an increasing amount of processes like eviction and um, enclosure. So there's two. Having just mentioned enclosure, I should say there's kind of two phases of enclosure in English history. And what we're talking about here is Tudor enclosure, which is. Um, it's largely frowned upon by the by the authorities and the crown. They don't like this idea. Um, Thomas More complains about it in Utopia, saying it's kind of you know the, the the enclosing landlord is a scoundrel because he's he's robbing the peasants and he's and he's forcing them off off the land and they'll they'll be into destitution. Um, what he's actually doing is sending the, the the former occupiers of the land, yes, into destitution, but also into local towns, so to, into the this now emerging industrial employment market so it's a long process it takes a long time there's lots of dead ends lots of two steps forward one step back but over time what the ways that people find are the most successful ways to do this become copied and the kind of, kind of builds up ahead of steam where you get this kind of what people would now like to call a kind of a kulak class of of peasants that that or that that, that kind of move up from their previous position but but more importantly than that, you also get these this class of it's not really I guess it's not really a different class, but this group of landowners who are much more forward looking than has been the case in the past. Case in the past, and they uh, they start to put their their operations on more of a capitalist footing, and they start to view land as an investment from which they want to return, rather than as a status symbol with which to ingratiate themselves with their social superiors. And, you know, momentum starts to build and you get this group of people that are kind of, they're actually quite powerful, but they're they're held back by all these remnants of this kind of old society, the things that they're, they're pushing against them all the time, but there are certain things they, they can't push against. And eventually this kind of culminates in the in the 16, in 1640s, kind of from the kind of early 17th century up to the 1640s, it culminates in this... Um, clash of interests between the crown and the nobility and the kind of this kind of gentry which is represented by by parliament and by the commons particularly um and their their interests are different and they're, they're, it's it, you can almost see this as a it's a kind of a battle between the past and the future and it's certainly a battle between capitalist interests and the kind of those trying to cling on to the old feudal order who are maybe people who are closer to the crown, have more to more, you know, have much more invested in the old order, more therefore more to lose. Maybe people that are just socially conservative and risk averse, or or people whose assets just don't lend themselves to kind of new new technology and, and, and this new approach to to making money out of land ownership. 
Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes when you're when you're reading about it or thinking about it that the idea that these um, how the, the the people were tied to the land and that was all tied up in in the borough and the landowner uh, it was unheard of to sort of break that that system and so when it started to come apart because of these these forces no one really knew it wasn't no one knew what was really happening. Um, and I think the next step I, I want to sort of talk about is how that um, how that friction, uh, how that new sort of bourgeois class or or sort of urban class um, started to come up with um, sort of these these enlightenment ideas that were the the sort of the first step in laying out the rights that that maybe everybody would would have. So you know we're starting to develop a system that can produce at a level where you know there's going to be some progress. So we 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 get through that and from a labor and productivity standpoint, and then people start thinking like, well, um, you know, uh, what kind of, what kind of rights should people have? Um, so we sort of move on a little bit and and we see some bourgeois revolutions that start to lay out this idea that. Um, that there are, there are broader rights. Um, you do talk about Paine a little bit, which, of course, is a, a, a good one for me because I'm a huge fan of Thomas Paine. But maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, how that moved into the political sphere and, and at least offered um, some sort of democratic rights to small groups of people to start. Sure. I think, I mean, I, I guess as, as well as the actual material conditions that these people were butting up against, there was the kind of age-old age way of legitimizing those which were theories like the divine right of being uh, sorry the divine right of kings and the um, the great chain of being and these ideas and, and, and largely backed up by religion um and partly as well there's there is an element of the the catholic protestant divide and then also on the protestant side of things between the church of england and the dissenters so the further away you move from the from the, the catholic ideal the more new ideas you're getting and the more ideas about equality and the less you're having your the the religion that you're consuming is is more the, the more protestant you you become it's kind of it's more you're reading the bible for yourself and making your own mind up about it whereas whereas the the, the more catholic side of thing is that you're having this told to you by by a, a, a priesthood and a clergy who have been themselves told how to interpret that, this going right back up the, the tree to Rome. So that so, so that's one thing that does help break down those ideas is this is the move away from Catholicism. Um, the one of the things that happened in the after the civil wars with the um, glorious revolution that was really sparked by a fear that Britain were going was going to revert to a Catholic country. So, I mean, maybe we're, we're, I'm probably jumping the gun there. We'll perhaps come back to that a, a bit later. But I think, yeah, so one of the things was was breaking this down. And I think this is important for us to see today. And we look at the, the, the extent of capitalist hegemony and we just think, how are we ever going to turn this upside down? You know, people just assume that this is just how it is and how it has to be. And we can't possibly move up and move beyond capitalism. But that must have been what it felt like in the 16th century that, that, that you couldn't possibly push through these ideas. You could never break down this really embedded kind of ideological commitment to tradition and hierarchy and and the, the uh, religious kind of doctrine that backed that up. So I think that's, you know, it's important to notice to see what a big, powerful kind of step was taken in, in that o over a long time, obviously. 
So obviously, uh, early on in that, there were people like John Locke who kind of justified the property acquisition and a, and a new approach to, to understanding what property meant and um, and how well, and what ownership meant. Um, and then I, I guess a, a lot of the work was done really in in terms of individuals. In, it, there was a one of the things that these guys were pushing up against was this social hierarchy where you knew your place and you had social superiors and they had rights that you didn't have just on the by virtue of their social status and that was something that they really had to push against and you see that in the in the bit that you read out at the start of the show from the Putney debates these people are saying you know when those guys are standing there saying the poorest he in England has the the same right as the greatest he they don't really mean. I mean, they're not ruling it out like, ideologically. They're, they're yeah, not it's more of an it. it's more of an idea than something that they really yeah, necessarily they, believe. They're kind of they're kind of refer when they say the poorest tea, they mean them really, and they're kind of lower gentry. They're they're not really thinking, you know, the way they phrase it because you can't really go around saying, well, it, this 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 uh, unequal access to to the law is terrible. It should be extended just to me. That's not that's not really an ideological argument, is it? But if you say it should be extended to everyone, well, you mean yourself, but you have to kind of say everyone, and that and then these ideas that spread to the kind of the levelers and people, then they they are saying, well, actually, what about us, the the footmen in the in the new model army? But I think um, that's that's an, that's something that happens with with capitalist ideologies that they they have to demand that these um, this this social privilege is. They, they have to argue that it that it's unjustified, and once they've done that, then that really has to apply to everyone. So very early on, really, they're talking about themselves, but the language they use to try and justify this ideologically is that everyone should have an equal these equal rights, and you can see that in things like the the U.S. Constitution says, you know, we take it as self evident that all men are born equal. Clearly, at the time, they don't mean that, do they? Because they've still got slavery. So. Yeah, I mean, as you're telling the story, I, I'm thinking, you know, those sort of Putney debates uh, are very similar to, you know, debates that were had here uh, at the at the birth of this country, uh, you know, where you had, um, you know, basically aristocrats uh, and, and huge landowners and land speculators who, you know, didn't mind being part of a particular t- type of sort of gentry hierarchy. Um, you know, telling everybody that this was like liberty or something. Uh, but but again, you had that uh, in the French Revolution, too. And it's just I think you describe it very well. It's just like, yeah, they they know it has to be expanded and it doesn't make sense to just expand it for them. Um, so you're caught in this middle ground of trying to rationalize something. And it and it and it takes, you know, I mean, uh, as you say at the end of the book, and we don't want to get too far ahead, but uh we're doing that now. We're just at a different point along the timeline. Um, you know, we're we're expanding it now and not really knowing how to do it necessarily. Um, but we're talking about sort of different kinds of rights and different kind of distribution, uh, just because we're we're so far we're so much further down the timeline. Yeah, and I think you know, I think that is that 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 is something that kind of comes back to haunt capitalism in a way because because all these early declarations then give. You know, they give rise to a couple of hundred years of people saying, "Well, hang on, <laughs> this is, it says in the Constitution or in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen that this should be the case, and it clearly isn't the case." And so you get this, and this is largely what kind of 
um, the, from the civil rights movement to kind of, or for really from the suffragettes or the chartists before that, you know, there's a long history of demanding that this promise that capitalist ideology makes that we all get, we, we are actually all, all equal. It, it doesn't say we should all have equal stuff. That's an important difference, but it does say that we're all kind of equal before God, before politics, before the law. And therefore that, you know, that, that a lot of the agitating politics of the last 200 years has been calling capitalist regimes out and saying, well, hang on, we're not, where's our vote? Where's, where's, where's our access to the law? Um, and you can see, I mean, one of the one of the things that we on the left now argue is that is obviously well, even even when you get an equal access to the law and um, uh, an equal vote and everything, politics and the legal system clearly people with more wealth get a better result out of that. They have somehow have a better type of access to those institutions than people who don't have any wealth. And so, really, until we do something about actual inequality of resources, those other, those kind of capitalist era, bourgeois equalities don't really come through in many cases. We don't, obviously we're, you know, they have come through to some extent with, we're a lot further along than we were in 1700, but though, you know, there's, there's a limit to the extent at, at which political and um, legal justice can be met while there is such great inequality mm-hmm. of access to resources. Yeah. So before we get to the progress section, the end section, which I want to spend ample time on because I think it's important for everybody, and and the way you frame it is is excellent, um, to to start being able to get this stuff into the discourse and say these are alternative ways uh, to do it. Um, It's not going to happen tomorrow, but when it does happen, we want to have some good ideas out there. Uh, sort of how you how you frame it, and I think that that's excellent. But before that, there's a there's a section in the book on ideology, which um, I appreciated uh, because there's a lot of a lot of dunking on libertarians, which I'm a huge uh, by name uh, at length, uh, which I, I I like very much. Um, I, I don't know how you want to go about that. Maybe you can just give us a, a little a little bit about sort of uh, extrapolating out the argument. Um, which they love logic, which I'm glad. So I'm glad. You, I'm glad you used facts and logic because they love that stuff, and uh, and basically coming to a conclusion that uh, you're going to have to say that one person's individual property rights means that a thousand people can die of hunger. You have to you have to come to that conclusion or else nothing makes sense. But I, I I'll let you sort of. Um, sort of describe it how, how, how you'd like, because I think a lot of people are going to take um, a lot of those arguments into some, uh, like, taxation or theft people and really make, make them embarrassed. So uh, I, I, I appreciate that section. Okay, so, so I guess, I mean, it's a pretty big section, um, and I'm just trying to think of where, where the best place to start is. I mean, I guess there are, some, there, there are some kind of, there's some easy wins there, really, isn't there? There's, there, there's the idea to start with that... Um, uh, property, the, the existence of the institution of private property increases freedom. And this is something that, so in the in the history section, I've kind of brought that, what we've just been talking about, and brought that up to the kind of present day and, 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 and done the argument about how capitalists will argue that it's so productive and it's, it's so efficient that even if it's even if there's lots of inequality, it makes the pie so bit so much bigger that everybody's slice is bigger. And I kind of dismantle that argument with some facts and, 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 and figures. And 
And then they'll say their next thing is, well, okay, even if even if it has these problems and, and even if it creates these great inequalities, we have to live with it because it's the only system that protects our freedoms. It's the only system that gives us the liberty. We can do as we, we like. As individuals, we can we can behave. And we need this system of capitalist private property to protect our 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 liberties from some kind of you know terrible state, centralized state power. And part of that argument is explicitly stated that the institution of private property um, increases everybody's freedom, not just property owners' freedom, but I, I think Hayek uses the word scarcely less those who own nothing. So you just have to, it, it doesn't take a lot of dismantling, does it? How does no. the system of private property increase my freedom? If, if we if we think of a kind of, if we do a thought experiment of the state of nature, which Locke uses a lot, when nothing is owned by anyone, as soon as somebody claims ownership of something, there are now seven and a half billion people on the planet who can't use that thing. So the sum total of freedom has just gone down considerably. Every every time something becomes owned by an individual, that means no one else can 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 use it or have access to it. And so ownership actually reduces freedom. Um, they what many of these kind of libertarian arguments come to you have to what you have to do is is point out to them that when they talk about freedom that what they talk about is their freedom not freedom as a concept when they say you know i want the freedom to do whatever i like with my land and i said well I, i've got nowhere to live i'll pitch my tent on your land they think that if i go and pitch my tent on their land that's an infringement of their freedom but they don't think that them stopping me from pitching my tent there is an infringement on my freedom. And the reason for that is because they own the land. Well, that doesn't make the, the, the fact of who owns something doesn't affect whether your freedom is diminished by being able to use it or not. It just means it, it falls back on a rights argument. We have the I have the right to stop you. They can't they can't argue that I'm my freedom isn't impinged by not being able to pitch my tent on their land. But what they can argue is that their rights their rights would be impinged if I did that because they are the rightful owner. So then you have to start thinking about how how, how does rightful ownership come about? And Nozick is obviously the, the main theorist on this and one that many libertarians have read and gone, oh wow, that sounds good and 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 they like it and and they uh, and they repeat it without really having thought about it. Nozick argues that um I mean in a way correctly if, 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 as far as it goes, things that are owned you have to you have to acquire them justly. You have to buy them or be given them or be but left them in a will. You can't steal something and, and say it's yours. But not only that, there has to be a history of just transactions for any item is that, that that is owned. Because otherwise, you're just saying, well, okay, somebody, I can go and steal some steal someone's cows and sell them to you, and now you're the rightful owner. Well, you, you know, you're not because you were buying stolen property. So it's not just your purchase of something; it's every purchase of that thing since it became a thing that has to be a just transaction. At the same time, they say taxation is an unjust transaction so anything that any libertarian owns that has ever spent any time being driven up and down a public highway by somebody who learned how to read and write at a public school before he which enables him to be a lorry driver and all the other publicly funded contributions to getting a product created and, and delivered to, to somebody's ownership if it, if it has to have a history of just transactions <laughs> And an unblemished history of just transactions and the taxation that paid for the roads that delivered it and the education of the people that made it and delivered it. 
was an unjust transaction because tax, taxation is theft, then there is no justly held property in any capitalist economy where taxation is is a thing. So, you know, there's there's kind of a hole there. They're going around in circles. Now, they, I guess, you know, to some extent, they'll argue, well, we, we don't want this taxation. We don't, you know, that we didn't ask for that. Well, that's not really an answer, isn't it? I didn't want private property to be an institution, but you're still holding holding that over me when you're deciding, you know, who owns what. Um, and then, you know, I, th I think... Sorry, I've just lost my thread there. I, I can't remember. There was another thing that you said that I was going to... Oh, no, no, no worries. Because there was one other thing sort of in this sort of in this argument that I was interested in about sort of pointing out um, discrepancies in the argument that um, this is sort of a, a natural state. Um, you know, it's sort of a circular argument. And you talk a little bit about um, sort of the the products, for lack of a better word, um, that add really no sort of value to anything and sort of just increase... Uh, uh, you know, increase the wealth uh, disparity uh, in, in, within capital. And um, one of them you talk about is market speculation, which I think everybody's pretty familiar with um, after, you know, all of the – after a lot of the disasters we've had in the last 20 years. Um, but the other one you talk about is uh, affiliate marketing and comparing it to traditional marketing and then really talking about how it's just a way to apply some formula to skim a little bit off transactions that are already happening. Um, I, I really appreciated that because I think, um, and you talk about bullshit jobs as well, the gra uh, the Graber, and I, I think a lot of people, especially in Delaware, who are are just sort of um, sort of professional office workers, uh, in in some sense, understand that idea that nothing's really being created or nothing productive is being done. Um, can you talk a little bit about like uh, uh, addressing that like non-productive work idea? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as you say, there's there's like the increasing financialization of market spe speculation. You know, the, the whole idea of of the one of the whole justifications of capitalism is that the way that people get rich is by making a, is by meeting people's needs. You know, um, Henry Ford didn't care about making cars; he cared about making money. And the best way to do it was make cars, and that's great because it means we've got cars. But actually, loads of the you know fi financialization that has gone on doesn't really contribute anything to the economy. Um, but yes, then there's also the affiliate marketing area, which is just an example, but it's that's one of the things where, at least with kind of conventional advertising, when they're not trying to kind of justify tobacco <laughs> tobacco sales, you know, by pretending that lung cancer doesn't exist, at least with traditional advertising, the idea is that there's somebody who wants something and there's somebody who's got something for sale and advertising makes the person who wants the thing aware of its, its existence to be, you know, that it's being produced somewhere and how much it is and where to buy it. Affiliate marketing actually interferes with that process of the consumer and the producer finding each other. It actually makes it harder to find things. We've got Google. You go into Google and type in, the, you know, a town and the word hotel. And what you really want back is all the hotels in that town to link to their webpage. But what you get is hotels.com, booking.com, Google hotels, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all there trying to just, they're intercepting your search, making it harder for you to actually find the thing you're looking for and try, but just skimming a little bit off the top. And because they're big companies, they put pressure on the hotels to, to 
you know, to, to for how much they skim off that. And the hotels are trying to compete with each other. So they're trying to give you the best price. But these companies are actually then taking some of their margin away. So your hotel now costs more because you're actually supporting another set of shareholders. And it's harder to, to find that hotel in the first place because this affiliate marketing company is zipped in there, squeezed themselves into your, your journey. So it, it's kind of, they're manufacturing this kind of demand. I don't, don't like, you know, we talk about supply and demand. No one demands someone to come along and get in there in the way of their, <laughs> their search for a product. Um, and one, I guess one of the other things I talk about is just, that, you know, I mean, there's in, inbuilt obsolescence, which has been around for 40, 50 years, I guess, at least. That's, uh, we've noticed it for at least that long. Um, and there's also there's also things like if you, you know, there's there's fake brands. So if you go to a supermarket in Britain, there'll be a dozen different types of deter- laundry detergent. And they're all owned by two companies. And all of that kind of marketing and brand development and, and stuff that goes on between those brands is just a waste of time. The money's just going to the same shareholders. They're, all they're doing is trying to differentiate products to appeal to different types of people. They're not making better types of washing or of laundry detergent. Um, we've got, you know, disposable razors with seven blades. When, you know, when, I, when I was kind of started to shave, there was a big thing that Gillette, you could get, you had a twin blade and it was a big deal. And now we're up to seven and soon it'll be eight. And I guess it'll be nine and then 10. And soon it'll be a dozen. What, what, what why are we having this? What's, where, where is capitalism taking us now? We can accept an argument that because capitalists need to, in order to make money, they, they need to kind of treat meet people's needs. And therefore, we had the car and the aeroplane and, and the computers and whatever. But surely we're hitting a point now. <laughs> you know, there must come a point where that relationship breaks down, where, where the coincidence between what makes somebody rich and what, what is a, provides a, a, a valuable social good that that historically that has been a, a, there has been some overlap there certainly not for everybody there's been lots of people left behind there's been terrible human costs capitalism but there has been an overlap between what makes capitalists rich and what kind of dr- drives our productive capacity forward but that's or while capitalists will like to tell you that that's this kind of eternal relate a kind of an eternal benefit of market relations it's actually a historically situated thing that is going to come to an end at some point. And when you go on the internet and you do a search and you find that you can buy the Danny DeVito celebrity prayer candle, you have to kind of wonder if we've actually got there. And, you know, clearly capitalists don't think we have got there because there's somewhere now there's an R and D department researching whether an Angela Merkel celebrity prayer candle would outsell a Louis Theroux version (laughs) or what other novelty worship accessories they can come up with. You know, this is, we're going to do a thing and try to get insanity of capital with no one can argue when there's 9 million people a year starving to death, that what we really need is another celebrity worship accessory. Yeah. I mean, that, that section ends like that. And it's, and it's and because it is funny. And, and my first thought was we should get everybody uh, to chip in and just start buying you cases of the Danny DeVito uh, uh, candle. <laughs> and so that you can just have this behind you in zoom. You can just have this. Yes, yeah, I never have that there. thing where I've got my book stacked up behind me. Like lots of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, I, I think uh, when, when you juxtapose that against just the, 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 catastrophic income inequality in you know the more developed countries and you know just the, you know 
human suffering uh, and many of the others across the population, you really have to sort of understand what you just said. Capitalism was a thing that's situated in time. Um, It was created over time. And so as it winds down, we should start talking about, um, you know, new ideas to take, you know, to take the next step. And and, and that gets us to the progress section. Um, I, I guess there's a couple of things I want to highlight and have you talk about, and then it can go sort of um, any any which way. Um, the f- the first one is the jobs guarantee, and I found it very interesting because in another section of the book, I think you use a little uh, you use a little vonnegut uh, phrase and and threw that in there, which I picked up on. Um, but there's another piece of vonnegut that I I think I want to talk about about the jobs guarantee and 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 talk about why your proposal. Um, is incredibly important and different from what people might think. So there's an old novel that Vonnegut wrote called Player Piano. It's the first one. And there was there's a, a plot in that novel about the reeks and the wrecks. And so it's sort of like where you go to work if you can't be an engineer or you can't be a chemist. Um, you're in sort of this public works and the nickname is the Reeks and Rex. Now, the problem is with that, it's it's sort of a catch-all. And it's and it, and it, and it's 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 meant to denote um, sort of this idea and it puts this idea in people's heads that um, that's not going to really solve anything. But actually in in your construction it does because it would it would offer uh, a an employment at like the best practices. So it would be stuff that needs to get done. It would be paid a proper wage and with proper benefits, and so it would actually become something that sort of does have a uh, an influence on the entire market uh, because there are stuff out there that actually people would be interested in doing, or it would be you know it would it would give people an opportunity to do something that isn't uh, it isn't a reek and a wreck. Do you know what I mean? So I, I like to talk about the job guarantee a little bit and and how that would work um, in in the way that you describe it. Sure. So I think, I mean, as you say, yeah, often it's seen as, and I talk a bit in the book about modern monetary theory as well, and many of the economists of that school talk about a job guarantee and frame that as the state being the employer of last resort. And that is kind of like the Reeks and Rex idea from Player player Piano. And I I think, I I almost try to think of a a different phrase because I didn't want, when I said jobs guarantee, I didn't want people to think, oh, that's what he means and then switch off because it's it's an entirely different, I'm advocating it for a different reason and the differences in its practical application make it a very different thing. And and as you you say, yeah, it should be, the state should be, it's going to take time. You can't say we're doing this and have it tomorrow, but over time the state should aim to become the employer of best practice and what that means is offering a decent job with good conditions decent training lifelong training if you need you know not just we've got to get out of this idea that you do a bit of training until you're like 23 or 25 and then you just work in that job forever that's that's something that we can do without but it it's good training and and good salary a decent salary and good good working conditions and proper holidays and paternity maternity leave that kind of thing and the reason for that really it kind of goes back I, you know as you'll have noticed I'm, I'm not aiming this book at people that are kind of marx enthusiasts or marx haters really but i do draw on marx quite a bit in it and i try to do so in a way 
that won't scare off people that are that that have kind of heard about about Marx, but but are not um, not too familiar. Um, and I don't want to. I try not to get too technical with it. But I think you know. I think there's something useful in there. So the the, the kind of the traditional Marxist view of what's wrong with capitalism is that well, I mean, there's many things, but the central thing is that almost all of the means of production, by which we mean productive resources, forests, factories, mines, mineral resources, that kind of thing. Anything you can, you know, you, know, you can make money out of, not your personal possessions at all, but, but productive resources. Uh, the ownership of that is concentrated in, in, in the hands of a tiny number of people. And what that means is most of us don't own any productive resources. We, can, we don't have any income. We, we can't have any income. We don't own anything that brings in an income, and, except for our labour power. So the deal is we go and sell our labour to the people who do own all those productive resources. And the, you know, the, one of the step forwards of capitalism, again, as, a, as opposed to feudalism, is that we get to choose. We can sell our labour power to the highest bidder. But we have to sell it to someone. Otherwise, we'll, in pure capitalism, we would starve. In the kind of mitigated versions we have in modern liberal democracies, we would just be very poor, we'd be on, on welfare. Um, so we we have the we we have to sell our labour power, but the the point is we do that we enter into that employment contract on disadvantageous terms because we don't have a choice. We have got to sell. We have a choice. We don't have to go through and work for employer A, but they also know that even though you know as long as employer A, employer B, and employer C all know that we've got to work for one of them, then the, the, we, we we don't have much of a negotiating position. So the wages the wages are less than they would otherwise be. If you imagine someone who's kind of got a bit of a trust fund and they've got a love for just a little modest existence, somewhere to live, the ability to participate in a modern democracy by having the internet and, and a bicycle or whatever, that person's not going to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go and clean toilets in an office block for minimum wage. But somebody who has no alternative, no other way of feeding the kids or whatever, will do a terrible job for rubbish money because they don't really have any choice. And so there's this level which which people refer to as exploitation. We're being exploited because we we start from this unequal negotiating position because we don't own anything. And the, the standard kind of Marxist answer has always been, well, then we seize the means of production. These people own it; they exploit us throughout the you know because of their ownership of it, and we seize it from them. And what I'm saying is, well, there's, maybe there's another way. Maybe another way to do it is that if we between us kind of elect a government that's got the balls to do it and they provide a, a, a jobs guarantee but with decent conditions and a good salary what we're doing is we're undermining the um, exploitative capacity of those people's ownership of the means of production they can't they can't exploit me anymore if, if the state is offering me a wage that is actually a reasonable wage you know a reasonable reward from for my effort Obviously, they're going to take some out because we all need communal things like schools and hospitals and libraries. But if I'm getting fairly rewarded for my effort, then the exploitative owner of the means of production is not going to be able to employ me because I'm never going to go and work for them. So the private sector is then going to have to up its game. And and, and so instead of kind of ending ex exploitation by seizing the means of production, what we do is we undermine the exploitative power of the means of production by offering a better alternative. And an analogy I use in the book is, you know, it's, it's sadly on its way out now because proper protections weren't put in place. But when the NHS was formed in, in, in Britain, 
People didn't go and seize hospitals. <laughs> Nobody was commandeered to work as a doctor. The state just provided the best health care that you could get for, you know, unless you were kind of the, the king or somebody really super rich, everybody just used the NHS because it was the best alternative. So if the state does that, takes the same approach to the jobs market, you know, and we can do this with housing. It's partly done in education. Only 7% of people in the UK send their kids to private school. Maybe there's another 7% or so that would do if they could afford it under, you know, currently. But actually for most people, Okay, my kids gets a decent education at a state school. I'm quite happy with that. That's, you know, I'll do that. And so there's no bid. There isn't the business there for the private schools to to get into that. The difference is if we do. So, so I think that approach can work in health, in housing, and education. And th those are really three big areas. But the crucial one is employment because that's the one that hits that. Um, it removes that exploitative power of the the, the ownership of the means of production gives to those people who own the means of production and it starts to level the playing field out and it starts to undermine their ownership and it starts to kind of erode this kind of uh, bedrock of capitalist relations. Yeah, I, I love that particular one because it did do that thing of sort of flipping it around and showing that, you know, the ownership can be undermined in other ways um, and, you know, it's sort of, sort of in creative ways. But I, I kind of want to finish like this. You mentioned uh, the NHS, and it reminded me to, to sort of talk about this because what you really have to do to start considering these uh, is to understand, you know, understand the book and the history of it, but also understand that that economic distribution is unsustainable. Um, you 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 pepper this with um, some picketry here and there that really sort of slams the point home at at, at appropriate times. This is not uh, not going to work, and and people need to be sort of convinced of that. Um, I had yesterday, Carl and I uh, interviewed a former state senator here in Delaware, who's now part of a group uh, who's fighting against the change that the state of Delaware are doing um, to try to make pensioners and widows and widowers of pensioners and dependents uh, pay more for their health care. It's uh, it's actually very bad. Um, and so she talked about um, how they're organizing against it, the things that they're doing, some of the other pensioners that they've spoken with, not just, you know, professionals like, you know, people that worked at the Department of Labor, but people who worked at the motor vehicle department or teachers or, or widows of other of other state employees. And she said, you know, at some point there has to be a moral question. Like, do we want to hand this over to a private company to skim money off of it to further exacerbate? the income inequality in this, you know, in this state and in the country? Or do we want to frame it in a different way? But ultimately, you can't get out of that moral question to say, to say actually, it's more important that the widow who's 82 who just had to take a part-time job doesn't need to go on this privatized health care plan and pay more because she really doesn't have that much money anyway. And we promised these pensioners something 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and we need to follow through on that. But we also need to understand really what the stark question is. And, and, and I think, I hope that, um, you know, your, your book goes into to starting to, to, to do that a little bit. But I guess to, to close, maybe you can talk about, um, about that just in general and um, 
sort of anything, any other sort of ideas that we didn't touch on in the progress piece that you think are important for people to start thinking about? Sure. I mean, I think I think one thing is I, I kind of view the book as kind of contributing to a conversation. I, I don't think I've got all the answers. I think I, I, I think I'm doing more than just saying here's some questions. And, you know, I think I think Certainly. I'm kind of having some decent stabs at some answers. But I, you know, I do think, and I think I've, I've often said I think it, it's a good thing that there are people that are trying to work out what the future should look like um, in quite some detail. Um, but I think for me, I'm kind of, um, I want to work out kind of the broad strokes of what that should look like. And I think, you know, it's good that people should should do that, that more detailed work. But I also think we've got to be aware that in, ten, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road, things will probably look very different anyway. And so some of the details are going to have to be changed. You know, you don't know how things are going to work until you start kind of messing around with them sometimes. So. Certainly, you know, there was the, there were huge movements for universal suffrage um, in the 19th century and the 20th century. And it's only after you've got universal suffrage that you just that you realise, actually, yeah, but we've also got a terrible electoral system that, that just means we're stuck with two terrible parties. And, you know, votes of that aren't of equal amount. We've all got one vote each, but actually it's not of an equal value. And that kind of, and so people move towards better better electoral systems but but the lesson there is is that what looked like the answer turned out to be a step towards it but not not the end game and i think that's sometimes that's something we need to kind of bear in mind so we don't want i don't want to be too kind of prescriptive about directions well yes about the direction we're going but not about the kind of the details of of, of how we we find that solution and i think you know we something that's a that's big kind of it's big news on the left in the uk that about the the nhs and, and it's like the system that you you know that you're describing there that is is you know the promises were made and people have paid their taxes for years and now they're not getting them and the pension age is going up every t- all the time and um, and the nhs is being dismantled and and i guess the the news here is that not just that the nhs is being dismantled but most people don't see it and or, or don't believe it'll ever happen. You know, you, it's not uncommon to hear people say, "No politician would ever get rid of the NHS. It would be political suicide to even suggest it." And then you say to people, well, "Hang on a minute. I've, you know, I had an NHS operation last year in a private hospital. <laughs> the NHS paid. They just sent me to a private hospital. They paid. I didn't have. There wasn't an NHS option. I didn't choose to go to go private." And people kind of, I guess, as it hits more people, they're slowly coming around to it. But we are losing something that that no one in this hardly anyone in this country wants to lose um yeah and i think that's scar- the kind of going backward yeah the scary thing um at least looking we don't you know, you know we, we're just trying and i think the way we framed this question was that you know these are just you know uh pensioners here and dependents who get you know a state pension we don't have an, even anything like the nhs and um, we're trying to continue to fight for what sort of what we do have. Uh, but in those fights, you know, I look at somebody like uh, like Keith Thatcher. I mean, uh, Keir Thorne, <laughs> you know, Keir Starmer. Like, the, 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 these people are not, um, they, at, at least there were people to, to define the terms and say, okay, uh, this, you know, this is what's happening and we're going to fight, you know, on these issues. But they seem just as happy to, to, uh, to let it go as well. 
Um, yeah, I think, well, Keir Starmer and um, Labour's shadow health minister, Wes Streeting, both take political donations from a guy whose name I can't remember, but he's a major shareholder in American health insurance companies. And he donates to, to Starmer, he funds Starmer and Wes Streeting. So you kind of have to think that when they say, they come out with phrases like, we need to reform the system, what they actually mean is we need to bring in privatisation. And they're already talking about things like like cutting waiting lists by using up the spare capacity of the private sector. There is no spare capacity of the private sector, you know, outside of like a handful of, literally a handful of people. The, um, you know, the private se- private sector doctors, they're NHS doctors that do a bit of private work as well. They, you know, they might do a couple of days a week working for private com- patients, but they're, they're NHS trained, they work in NHS hospitals. So, the idea that they have spare capacity to be taken up to get rid of waiting lists is, is just nonsensical. And, and that's the same when you talk about nurses, midwives, you know, um, buildings, equipment, everything. There is no spare capacity in the private sector to, to, to deal with the waiting lists. So when they say they're going to bring the private sector in to do that, you have to suspect that they're actually going to bring the private sector in for other reasons. Yeah, here uh, what they're doing is they're taking the, the, the state uh, insurance, the, the Medicare insurance, and uh, it's they're basically selling it to a private entity called Highmark, just a, just an ins- just a health and private health insurance company. So they get all the fees, but then Highmark can then, as Medicare Advantage, you know, they put a different label on it. Um, then they can start, wick- you know, raising a fee on something or, or driving you to in-network people or making you get pre-approvals. And then by, by putting all of these controls on it, then they scrape a little bit off, you know, off the top. So and the, the worst thing is if they make more, they kick back to the state if they're able to make more money. It's very, very – I mean, it's, it's grotesque actually. But, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that kind of – you know, I want people to sort of start to digest your book and understand what the history is, understand how to make the arguments, and understand how to be ready to try to make, you know, uh, economic distribution and and things like just life, as we said at the very, very beginning, just, you know, just food, shelter, and how you live your life better. But, uh, you know, if everybody's looking to scrape, you know, two cents off of every click to Hotels.com, we're, we're in deep shit. <laughs> it, it does make you wonder what kind of people actually, you know, well... When you're talking about healthcare, there are people going, yeah, 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 okay, you could provide healthcare, but if we don't do that, I could make some money. And that's, you know, I've, I've, I've never been that. I've never understood that kind of person. So, yeah, I mean, I, even... You know, but the, they are out there. Yeah, and, and what's really uh, painted a stark picture is a lot of the COVID benefits and the, and the, and the, the, the things that went in during the pandemic, uh, whether in, in the United States anyway... Uh, child tax credits, um, you know, uh, on a be- higher unemployment insurance. Uh, there was other health um, things made available. A lot of, a, a big, big docket of things. A lot of that had driven, like, childhood poverty down by, like, 40%. It, 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 it drove hunger and people who were living in hunger down to almost zero um, like it did all of these great things, but if, and and we did them like at you know, we, we did we just did them, uh, but then we just let those expire because we don't we, we'd actually rather have forty percent more kids live in poverty. Actually, that's what we actually would rather have. It's so, insane, yeah. isn't it? Yes. So we've ended child poverty, child poverty, but 
let's just have it back again. <laughs> I mean, why not? We were making, I feel like maybe we were making a little bit more money before. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a six. So last question, uh, do the ashes come back this summer? Are, is that, is that happening? I feel um, like. Ha- I think so. Yeah, I think so. So I think, I mean, as you know, I work at the, on the cricket grounds. I won't be working all of the ashes tests, but my pass is an ECB pass. that gets me into them all. So I will be having at least a couple of days at each of them. Um, and yeah, I think we could. I mean, the last time, so when I was younger, we went for like 20 years up till 2005. We hadn't won the Ashes or even got close for like 20 years. And then we had this really good year where we didn't lose a test match for 12 months. And we went into that Ashes series just full of confidence and, and won it in the end. There were some squeaky moments there, but we won the Ashes. And then, you know, we kind of competed for, for the next kind of 10 or 15 years. Well, kind of up till now, I guess. Now and I yeah, it's again we haven't we it's not twenty years now, but it's getting it's a while since we've we've won them. And I think, yeah, we've probably got a team that could do that now and we've got an attitude that could do it. Um Australia have struggled against India. Um and, and we, although we lost that last te- test against New Zealand. I, I I thought about you and, and a lot of the listeners to this show will not understand what this means, but a a, a one run uh a one-run loss like that, I, I've never, it's actually, as it was happening, a couple of my mates and I are texting back and forth as we're watching it. And I said, you know, uh, if, 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 if they get another run and draw the level and then get out, the match is a tie. I said, and I looked it up. I said, oh, it's happened twice in like uh, 175 years, whatever it is. But, I, uh, oh, but a one, I think that's only the second one-run win. <laughs> so that's actually more rare than the tie. Yeah. So the but context, to, I guess, for people that, that don't listen to, that don't, don't, understand, don't, don't pay attention to cricket, is that it, it was one run in that, and I can't remember the exact scores, but if you add the two innings together, it would have been something along the lines of, 683 beat 682. Correct. After after it, uh, it wasn't it wasn't two one or something. It was 683 beat 682, and it took five days. It was nearly to the end of the fifth day, wasn't it, to get there? And yeah. both teams had been there'd been times where England were cast iron. They were definitely going to win this. Well, England made them. England made them follow on. Favorites. And New Zealand had to follow on. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Which is just, but usually just means you're, when you you're just being destroyed in this game if you have yeah, to. Follow. Yeah. 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 And then okay, they we, we, one run. <laughs> I think we've gave, given these people enough of enough cricket test cricket talk for the today. Steve, uh, thank you so much for joining again. Um, the book again is How Capitalism Ends: History, Ideology, and Progress. It's at Zero Books. Um, you can get it. I think at Red Emma's. I got it somewhere where I didn't go. I through don't think it's at Red Emma's actually. Okay, um, I, I, I'm not sure how I got it. Put it in there, but 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 okay. it's definitely at at many kind of kosher bookshops yes and i also uh, always recommend people if if in uh i don't know if it works in the uk but if you go to bookshop.org um you can actually find a bookshop near you and if you get it online they get a little bit of a kickback because we have a little books we have a little new bookshop uh in uh in the next neighborhood over and she turned me on to that i recommend you do that if you can't do anything else and do not use amazon please and there is there is a uk equivalent of bookshops and there's another one called hive.co.uk that does the same thing you pick a local bookstore and they get a little bit of the profit from your online purchase Steve, this summer as you're going, as you're zipping ground to ground on your on your motorbike, I'll be I'll be living vicariously through you. Uh, so I, I also hope Basball brings it home this summer. So, cool. go. 
All right, have a good afternoon. Thanks so much, everyone. Uh, left is best.